We're continuing our Lenten series on the call of the prophets. And the last time I preached, I preached on communal sin, that sense that we are part of a fabric. We need to recognize and own a share of sin committed within the fabric of life, whether it's our country. I preach particularly on the sin of the church, the global church, ways that we need to enter into, own, confess, repent. And this Sunday, um, we're going to look at individual sin. Uh, As people who come from generally Western cultures, individual sin makes more sense. This idea of personal piety, that in fact we are threads, and we are fabric. We get that we are threads a little easier. Progressive churches, by and large, tend to preach against systemic sin, communal sin. More conservative churches tend to preach against individual sin. But really, we want both. We want both personal piety and social piety. Like We want personal justice, personal righteousness, and social righteousness. Jesus is looking for both. And to be fair, those who tend toward preaching against systemic sin also want individual sin. They don't want systems that are operating well and that have been confronted and corrected, but individuals whose lives run askew. And those who tend toward preaching against individual sin also want systems that are good and right and fair and just. It can be a bit of a straw man that we present of progressives looking toward this direction and conservatives this direction. But truth be told, all those who know and follow Jesus, wherever they are on the American spectrum of conservatism or liberalism, want both social piety and personal piety. The Greek word, Dikaios is a word that's translated righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But it could be understood as justice. It really contains both those ideas of an individual righteousness and a social justice. When you see righteousness in the New Testament, you're thinking both are uh, being expressed here. And really, both the Hebrew, Sedek, and the Greek uh, dikaios have this idea of social and personal piety, uh, right standing, right relationship between all things. You know, when I first encountered evangelicals as a kid out of high school and entering college, my first impression was not that these were legalistic, moralistic people, even though the the folk that I was introduced to, including my roommate, freshman year in college, wouldn't have any trouble identifying themselves as fundamentalists. My first impression was just that they were really, really good people. They cared about others. They put others first. They had such integrity. It wasn't this highly judgmental, looking down their nose, holier-than-thou goodness. They were just solid, solid, good people who loved well, who died to themselves, 
who cared about others. And truth be told, I think even in this age where we feel a lot of uh, angst and judgment on the part of those who are following Jesus, the ones we know typically are just good people wanting to live good, righteous, upright lives. I want to talk about a prophet who's going to bring a word to us this morning. This is a prophet that stands at the very end of the original covenant and the beginning of the new covenant. The prophet's name was Jesus. Um, yes, Jesus was a prophet. In fact, uh, when he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? They said, well, some people think you're Elijah. And that confusion could be understandable because uh, Elijah did this thing where he uh, gave a woman or asked a woman to take what oil and meal she had, and it kept multiplying. Like Elijah had a loaves and fishes kind of experience. Elijah raised a widow's son from the dead, just like Jesus did the widow of Nain. Elijah preached against the hypocrisy of the leaders of his day, just as Jesus did. You can understand why people thought, yeah, this guy's a prophet, totally a prophet. Now, he happens to be prophet, priest, and prince, all in one, but Jesus was definitely a prophet. And I'd like to look at one of the first sermons that Jesus ever preached, thing recorded in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. We tend to think of someone shouting, repent as someone who's delivering bad news to us. But for Jesus, this is good news. I love that juxtaposition. Repent. Believe in the good news. The good news and repentance go together. Uh, you know, there are stories in the Gospels of the lost things. Um, and there's joy in these stories about lost things because this series of stories, a lost coin, a lost son, and lost sheep, end with, I mean, the, the punchline of these stories is there is more of a party in heaven over one person who repents than over 99 who don't even need to repent at all. They live such upright lives, they don't need to repent. Like, that's great news. That's exciting. That's worthy of a party. But one person repenting, that party is even bigger than the 99 who don't need to repent. You know, acknowledging your sin is really wonderful news. Um, our sin isn't good news, but recognizing it and turning from it is. It is exciting. Like, how many of us after identifying something we've done wrong, recognizing it, feeling that conviction, 
confessing it, feel like, I am so exhilarated. I just want to party. You know, there is this thing that hangs on us that tends to prevent us from entering into the joy of committing personal sin, repenting, turning from it, and receiving forgiveness. Um, we ought to see ourselves as those who have never sinned. I mean, God says in the prophets, I will remember their sins no more. There is this recognition when you sin, when you see it, when you confess it, there is an entering into jubilee. This forgiveness of debts, this freedom from slavery, emancipation being proclaimed when repentance occurs. That's the good news. The good news for sinners is jubilee is here. Recognizing that, entering into that through repentance is what I believe Jesus means when he says repent and then convince yourself of the really, really amazing news that it is true. Jubilee's here. There's a story in the Gospels that often is titled in our Bibles, A Woman Caught in Adultery. That's probably mistitled. Probably should be men caught in hypocrisy. Like that's the, that's the point of the story. But, you know, after Jesus confronts these who are ready for judgment to come upon this woman, and they turn away, Jesus says, where are those who condemn you? And they're not here. There's no one. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Have you heard those words? Can you imagine those words from Jesus over something that you've done wrong and confessed? That's not to say that guilt um, is always bad or always good. You know, there's good guilt and there's bad guilt. Guilt is really this pain response to something that's wrong that needs healing. Good guilt, godly guilt, turns us to God. Uh, the prophet Hosea, God speaks after allowing Israel to experience the pain of their sin. He says, then I will return to my lair. God in this description is a lion. Until they have borne their guilt and seek my face, in their misery, they will earnestly seek me. Guilt is that pain that prompts you to call a doctor. It's pointing to a presenting symptom, something you've done that often underneath has some root of brokenness, or you've been wounded, and that guilt pointing to that thing that you did or said or thought or didn't do or think or say, that's your invitation to call the doctor, because unless a wound is addressed, it's likely to get infected and to kill us. 
For many years, I experienced unbidden violent thoughts, things that would just pop into my head that uh, were just gross, violent. Um, and I'd feel badly about those. Lord, I'm sorry for, you know, the thought would come and then I'd ponder it for a while. At one point, I invited God to search me and ask, where do these come from? Like, if this is a symptom, what's the disease underneath it? And at that moment, when I was really ready to look beyond the presenting sin of indulging violent thoughts, God showed me how during my growing up years, I tended to be really, really quiet and was target for uh, cool people to tease. And during those years... I began to imagine myself beating those guys up. I was an amazing imaginary martial artist as a 10-year-old. You know, I could take down anyone quite violently. <laughs> and so I played with those thoughts. As There was an invitation there. There was an open door there. And once I recognized that, I went through as many people as I could remember who had uh, teased me or done mean things to me and forgave them. And it was that journey where I've not had that same struggle of violent thoughts, where I dealt with the underlying issue and the guilt that led to sorrow, that led to repentance, that led to me examining the source, brought life. Worldly guilt leads to death. And it's often imposed on us by others, sometimes by ourselves, but godly guilt leads to life. I love this Second Corinthians verse. It uses the word sorrow, but I think you could insert the word guilt. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Godly guilt leaves no regret. Sorrow provokes you to turn to God, receives God's absolution. That's one of the things I love about uh, the Catholic experience in confession, repentance, and forgiveness, is that it's done with another person. Uh, and the priest, in this case, after that process, will proclaim absolution. That is, absolve, I, I announce that you're absolved. Neither does God condemn you. Those words get spoken. And that sense of freedom after being absolved is the good news. That's why we ought to throw a party every time we repent and confess. Um... Sometimes I think we ignore the restitution part because often in that acknowledgement, oh man, I really screwed up here. You find out, and I really messed with a number of people, not just myself, but others were affected. How do I make restitution? I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, someone called Janine and I out of the blue who had lived with us and felt like, I took advantage of your open table. You know, I ate more than my share and did not 
contribute to the household food budget. And even though Janine and I didn't feel that or recognize that, for this person it was important to write out a check and make restitution. It's got to cost me something when I recognize I've done something wrong, especially when I recognize that it has impacted other people. We need to make restitution. That's part of the repentance. It's like I'm turning from this, not just as a mental exercise, but there is some kind of physical response in my moving away from this sin. Uh, A few months ago, maybe it was last year at this time, during the same Lenten period, I thought, oh, this friend at work, Tom, I'm just going to... Spend time every day that we're connecting, uh, mentioning those things, thought, word, or deed, that just seem like small sins. You know, the little white lies. Like there shouldn't be any uh, hierarchy. Like all those things that we think or do or say that just are unkind or not right. We ought to confess those. So I thought I'll do that. And so uh, we were meeting for a uh, spiritual retreat at Holy Wisdom. And I thought, you know, on my way here, I drove over the speed limit. I mean, not that that in itself is a sin, but behind that was this kind of impatience. I tend to be a patient guy, except when it comes to driving. Yeah, I don't think that was right. I don't, uh, this kind of anger at the person in front of me as I'm jockeying for position. and No, no, they moved into my lane and they're still driving the speed limit. What's wrong with them? That kind of thing. Like, that's sin. It's not right. And so um, Tom, who has been exploring Celtic Christianity, said, I think penance is something that's good. Like this this, uh, material proof that you are really turning from your sin. I'm going to give you penance. Your penance is to drive five miles under the speed limit from Holy Wisdom back home at the end of the day. That was surprisingly hard, partly because I know what it's like to be behind the guy with white hair who's driving under the speed limit. I became that guy intentionally. But there was something that happened in me with that act of penance that like recognizes the time is whatever the time is. I'm not on a tight schedule. I'm not late for anything. I'm going to lean into patience. I'm going to lean into being okay with a slower pace. That was healthy for me. That was my act of restitution despite the train of cars behind me honking and looking at the clear single-lane road ahead of me, it was healthy for me to have some kind of act that turned me away from that thing. Another great prophet at the time of Jesus with John the Baptist, and there was a bit of a revival. I mean, people were coming out to be baptized And John tried to chase them away. He's like, what do you think you're doing? You're like snakes. I mean, you can see the fire in the grass, and you're just slithering away. You're just giving repentance and confession, lip service, 
Here's what John the Baptist says in Luke 3, 10 through 14. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Like, show me the beef. Show me the fruit. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. This is the answer to what does repentance look like? Well, you've got to share. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. This is what repentance looks like for individual sin. These are people coming out to confess individual sin, be baptized. John's saying, don't just make it lip service. It's, this isn't an internal thing. This isn't a thought exercise. Show me the fruit of repentance. Let's see you act like you really are turning from these things that you've did, done or said or not done, or not said when you ought to have. And they all had this economic piece. Did you notice that? Repentance costs us something. So I think that's true on a communal basis. I think the question of reparations is a fair one. I think it's a thorny one. I'm not sure exactly the path through that. But individual sin, we ought to think through, how is it that this act may have affected others, and what might be a sign of me turning from it externally? That cost me something. I'd like to lead us in an exercise of reflecting on our sin. And I'm going to ask God to bring to mind for you just one sin that you've committed. Maybe it's something you've done or said or thought that you know is unkind, like you're just recognizing, oh man, oops, that thing yesterday or last week, that was dumb, that was mean. Maybe it's a way you put yourself before others, or maybe it's a feeling of superiority, thinking poorly of someone else. Maybe it's an indulgence that was just one step too far, like the game on your phone was good, but the 10 games, probably a step too far. Like, I'm, I'm not going to try to define it for you. You know, binging on mind-numbing things can be something that's sinful. I mean, there, I suppose there are places where it's restorative. But you've got to ask in your heart. Like, when I was full and had that other plate full, was that a step too far? Like, just... Be still. Think of something that you believe may be just a picture of an action, or maybe it's something you failed to do. You know, pass someone in need. You didn't speak up when that person did or said that unkind thing, and you know you should have spoken up. Let's take a moment and reflect. Is there something, God, that you are calling me to recognize and to turn from? Just take a moment. Ask God to search us.
You know, as you think about that incident, ask God if there's an underlying wound, their brokenness that needs to be addressed. May not be. May be a presenting symptom. Now let's examine, is there something I should do to bring restoration? Is there some response to this that may cost me something? Invite the Lord to guide you into understanding how you might, in some material way, restore something that was taken. And Again, maybe it hasn't affected others. Maybe there's something, you know, for me at one time, it was uh, deleting a game on my phone, you know, that kind of thing. Is there a, a material response? Now, I'd love for us to enter into the party in heaven, even if just amongst the 20 or so folk who are participating in this morning service or the few dozen who may watch it later, let's enter into the Jubilee party. Just think about it. You're recognizing this, saying sorry for it, turning from it, is provoking fiesta, because it is a sign of jubilee. Uh, I'm going to ask Ross to play a video of Michael Card. I've loved Michael Card's music, and this song, Jubilee, is my invitation and challenge. The words are in both English and Korean, if that's helpful to you. So it's a concert he's giving in Korea. It's my invitation to rejoice. I don't know what you do when you get good news, like really, really good news, like lottery-winning good news or that job, that offer that came, or that you got into that school or that program that's hard to get in, you get that email or you get that call. I don't know what you do. And some people are quiet, and that's okay. Uh, some people like to whoop and jump would you do whatever it is that you do when you hear good news? Michael Card will invite you to uh, sing the chorus. Go ahead and do that. It's very simple. But enter into the emotional reality of believing in the good news. Let's listen and participate in Jubilee. to be set free for the debts to all be canceled so his chosen ones could see his deep desire was for forgiveness he longs to see their liberty and his yearning was embodied in the year of jubilee this is your part jubilee jubilee 
Hallelujah. Glory to God. Neither do I condemn you, is what Jesus is saying. You need to understand forgiveness as we enter into both communal and into individual sin. It will be a raw exercise unless we appreciate jubilee, forgiveness. Then your response, then your repentance, then your restitution comes out of this place of sheer joy. Lord, thank you for inaugurating a continual year of Jubilee. Help us to live into it and to live out of it in Jesus' name.